five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. Welcome to the first of our three-week annual winter series. As with our summer series, we'll bring you three recent important news updates and talks on topics we think you'll find interesting from other creators. Our regular interviews will resume on January 14th. This week, we have a Future in Space Operations teleconference with Scott Tilley and Ty Lee of Maxar Technologies. They will discuss the critical lunar gateway technology, the power and propulsion element, being developed for NASA. The power and propulsion element is the first element in NASA's lunar orbiting gateway, which will form the basis of a sustainable human return to the moon and beyond. The program is currently in preliminary design phase, with the first demonstration element set to be launched in 2022. A link to the supporting presentation is available in the story that accompanies this episode on spaceq.ca. Listen in. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is Scott Tilly, um, along with Ty Lee, out here at Maxar in Palo Alto. I'm extremely pleased to get a chance to talk to you about this exciting project. I'm a little less pleased that I happen to have a, a cold, and my voice is going to sound a little froggy, but I'm going to persevere and try uh, to get through my section of the charts. Um, if you hear a pause, it may mean that I'm waving on Ty to take over for me because I have an imminent coughing fit. So I apologize for that, but I'm going to try to get through this. Um, for those of you following along in the presentation, um, there's, a, there's a nice picture, an artistic rendering on the cover page of the package uh, showing the uh, PPE spacecraft in cislunar orbit. And uh, one of the things you'll hear a lot about are the um, propulsion aspects uh, of that vehicle, which is one of the key uh, technology demonstrations we're going to be doing. So let's go ahead and we're going to flip to slide two. Uh, titled PPE Program Overview. So the power propulsion element is going to be the first element of NASA's lunar orbiting gateway. And this is going to form um, a outpost, which is going to lead to a sustainable human return to the moon and beyond. Uh, we have a goal of uh, landing a man and first woman on the moon in 2024. We're working very hard with NASA to keep on track to that. The uh, spacecraft itself is, is a high-powered spacecraft capable of some state-of-the-art uh, solar electric propulsion uh, technologies. It heavily leverages the uh, commercial platform that we build here at Maxar. Um, it's called the 1300 bus, um, and I'll say a little bit more about that later. But obviously, um, this platform is going to provide the main functions for the gateway for power, propulsion, communication, attitude control, and avionics. So, so Maxar was selected um, in uh, May uh, for this project, um, and we are going to be on track to uh, build this and launch this in uh, late 2022. Um, let me just, uh, for, for those of you that may be less familiar with the Maxar name, uh, we're here in Palo Alto, and most recently we were SSL or Space Systems Loral. But um, through our um, 
acquisition of Digital Globe, uh, we changed the name to Maxar, and, and in particular, our group here in uh, Palo Alto is known as Maxar Space Infrastructure. So we're going to talk some more about some of the key technologies. Ty's going to focus in on that a little bit, and I'm going to talk more about the mission. The interesting thing about this contract is that we are building a spacecraft to fly a one-year demonstration mission to collect data and to demonstrate the capabilities uh, so that NASA can uh, take ownership of the um, vehicle in cislunar space to start the Gateway uh, program. So in a little bit of ways, this is like a delivery in orbit type program. But the demonstration part of the mission is very important, and that's what I'm going to talk a little bit more about. So if we go ahead and we slip, uh, flip over to slide number three, which is titled Mission Segment Description. So from the mission overview point of view, there's, there's various segments. There's, there's the, the on-orbit space segment. There's the ground operations segment. Uh, there's the launch segment. Um, and, and as the gateway matures, there's various gateway users. So this chart simply shows where PPE fits into this mix of all these different mission segments. PPE is right in the middle there. And obviously, to the right, it interfaces with a launch vehicle, so it can be lofted into orbit. Um, and to the left, it's obviously going to interface with the gateway modules as they begin to arrive and expand the capability of the gateway. Um, the space segment also includes the potential for a, a lander or ride share, and we have numerous external interfaces on PPE, which will allow for uh, things like refueling operations or external payloads to be mounted uh, on the vehicle. Look towards the bottom of the page, this is our segment uh, connection to the ground segment. So the communication aspects of PPE will interface down um, into the ground segment, and currently we're using the um, scan architecture to take, make use of both the near-Earth network and the deep space network ground segments. And then this data is routed through the NASA networks over to the Maxar Mission Control Center here in Palo Alto, and their crew of people will be doing uh, the mission operation planning, the mission operation execution, and all the data analysis and data reduction from the demo period. This will also allow us to integrate NASA folks in as well so they can get uh, firsthand experience and access to the data during that one-year demonstration flight. Let's go ahead and flip over to the next picture. So this is slide number four. And on slide number four, we have a, a, a notional picture of the, the whole mission. And so what you can see here is we depart the Earth on a uh, heavy lift launch vehicle. Uh, right now the plan is that's going to be a Falcon Heavy. And we would separate into a, um, a, a orbit um, GTO uh, synchronous uh, altitude or higher. We're trading those parameters, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, like with most missions, when you separate from the launch vehicle, you go through a series of activations to um, uh, do things like deploy your solar arrays, deploy your antennas. Um, in the case of electropulsion, we have gimbaled electric thrusters, so we have to uncage and release the electric thrusters. And we do all these things to check out the spacecraft 
and make sure it's it's healthy and all systems are operational um, and functioning after launch. Then we we would spiral out primarily under the electric propulsion system to higher and higher apogees while simultaneously raising perigee. And this would put us on a, on a trajectory to get out to um, lunar altitudes in our orbit. Then we would go through a series of uh, phasing and initial capture operations to uh, transition into the, um, the cislunar orbit. We're going into an orbit called the Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit, or NRHO, and we will uh, insert into that orbit, and this is where we'll start the initial operations. Now, you notice also on here, we um, are looking into the capability of uh, perhaps taking a, a ride share. Uh, could be a lunar um, lander, could be a, a lunar orbiter, uh, could be a CubeSat payload. We're still looking at various options and talking to various parties about that. Um, so we don't have a definitized set of um, rideshare passengers at this time, but we're still working on that. Once we get into the um, orbit, um, we will then maintain our, our operations there. Uh, we'll be able to demonstrate that we can uh, maintain that orbit. Um, we'll be able to maintain communications with Earth. We'll be able to maintain our power and attitude control functions and all the key operations that are going to be required to support Gateway. Uh, now we're going to go on to the next slide, slide number five. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is uh, talking a little bit about our um, mission design, and in particular the electric orbit raising trajectory. This is a notional um, chart showing um, how our apogee and perigee can be raised by the uh, electric thrusters on the spacecraft. Um, we have uh, a number of thrusters on the spacecraft. Ty is going to go in a little bit more detail about uh, a variety of thrusters. They're, they're different power levels, and they are different um, thrust levels. Uh, but we use them in combination uh, to fire uh, all the way around the orbit. Um, we don't typically fire if we're passing through an eclipse, so we'll um, it suspend electric orbit raising if we're passing through an eclipse. But day after day, we will be able to raise the apogee and perigee of the orbit up to um, an uh, altitude that is uh, within the moon's sphere of influence where we can be captured. So this particular plan here, you can see from the chart, takes somewhere on the order of 160, 170 days. Um, this particular one uh, was a launch to a geosynchronous transfer orbit. Right now we're looking at a little higher drop-off point, supersynchronous orbit. And we trade these parameters uh, because we, we want to be mindful of how much time we spend in the radiation belts as we sp spiral out. Um, they do have some known and understood uh, effects on spacecraft, uh, in particular solar arrays and the power generating of, uh, capabilities of the spacecraft. So there's, there's a fair amount of mission analysis and mission optimization that goes on in this process. And this just shows one particular case. Okay, I'd like to go on now to slide number six. And this is talking a little bit more about the actual NRHO orbit. I want to spend a little bit more time on this one because it is a very interesting orbit. 
Um, the, the spacecraft is, is in a Earth orbit that is in close, um, closely coupled to the moon. So there are gravitational interactions between both the Earth, uh, the sun, and the moon, and that perturbs this orbit and makes it take particular trajectories around the moon. And they have some features that are uh, very beneficial uh, for doing um, lunar operations. And I want to talk a little bit about that. The, the orbit itself has a period of uh, on the order of six and a half days. Uh, it has an altitude uh, or a radius of about 70,000 kilometers at its high point and about 3,500 kilometers at its low point. We, we will call these things like Apolloon and Paralloon. Then while we're rotating um, in this orbit about the moon, the moon, of course, is orbiting around the Earth. And the Earth is, of course, orbiting around the sun. So there's a lot of complex geometry that's going on here, and PP has to work with it. Uh, but this orbit is, is quite special for a lot of reasons. So I'd like to uh, direct your attention to the graph that's um, farthest to the right in the bottom. It says Earth view of NRHO. This is one of the really nice features of this orbit, is that the orbit um, never allows the moon to block the line of sight to the Earth. So you have full Earth communications all the way around. And in particular, um, this type of NRHO orbit, it hovers over the south pole of the moon, where the Shackleton Crater is, and where uh, there's a lot of uh, targets of opportunity have been identified for exploration. So this is a good orbit to support um, lunar relay um, and coordinate missions to the South Pole. Uh, just to give you a sense of the time scale, um, you spend the vast majority of the time in this orbit hovering uh, to the to the south of the uh, South Pole, and the top part where you're passing close to the moon, that arc um, it really is very fast. It takes less than uh, 12 hours to whip by um, the uh, close close area of the moon. And of course, at that time, you're passing over the North Pole of the moon, um, and you're not in contact with the South Pole um, users or, or base camp or whatever is there at the time. So, so this orbit is very nice uh, for setting up communication relays, as I said. Um, it, it does have other features in it um, that affect the attitude control system. Um, we normally worry about things like solar torque, uh, but in this particular orbit, one of the things that's very substantial is gravity gradient torque. Gravity gradient torque um, is, is a function of the inertia properties of the, uh, the thing in orbit, in this particular case, say the gateway. Um, the attitude of the um, thing in orbit relative, like the local uh, horizontal and local vertical, uh, and the actual um, orbital speed that you're passing by, how close you are to the moon, how close um, and how strong the gravity effects are. So as the gateway gets built out and the inertias get larger and larger, um, they're, they're going to be on the order of several million kilogram meters squared, which is a fairly significant uh, amount of inertia. Coupled with this perigee, uh, paraloon passing, 
uh, we get very large gravity gradient torque. So this is one of the challenges that PPE has, is managing that for the whole gateway stack. Now, the gateway itself is not a permanently tended outpost, so most of the time there's no crew there. And when there's no crew there, we have more flexibility in how we orient the vehicle in this orbit. Um, we will fly most of the time in a uh, what's called a sun-pointing equilibrium attitude. And that allows us to manage solar torques uh, and manage the thermal environment and other things. Um, and it's, uh, it's a power optimal orientation as well. During the one month a year that there's a mission plan and Orion comes up and docks with us, this is the period of time where we have an additional constraint on the gateway. We have to fly the gateway with Orion's tail to the sun. So where they have docked on the gateway, we now fly the gateway such that Orion's tail to the sun stays within 20 degrees of the sun line um, with uh, excursions of up to three hours allowed to, say, reorient the vehicle for, say, a station-keeping maneuver or something like that. So there's some peculiarities around this and these additional constraints that happen when Orion is visiting. But um, all in all, that's, that's part of the challenges of the Gateway mission is to, to coordinate and make all these operations um, consistent uh, and maintainable and reliable. Um, and uh, that's, that's what PPE's job is in terms of maintaining power, propulsion, communications, and attitude control. Okay, I would like to switch on to the next chart. I'm on chart number seven. And this is just a snapshot um, I wanted to show of, of a, a, a gateway build out with just some, some notional pieces. Um, this is a pretty old chart and there's a lot more um, uh, current art available from NASA that shows some of these modules and configurations uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, in particular, I don't have anything like a lunar lander shown in this particular chart. But it shows how things attach to the power propulsion element. There's going to be an initial habitation module. This is the first element to dock with uh, PPE. Um, that's uh, currently known as the HALO, HALO module. Um, then there will be additional logistics modules that bring things up. Uh, then Orion will come and visit. Um, there will be additional modules that will come up like airlocks and, and secondary hab modules. Uh, robotics uh, will come up to the space, to the gateway, just like we have robotics on the uh, International Space Station. But during all this period, um, the, the configuration of the gateway is changing, and the uh, center of mass of the gateway is changing. The mass itself is changing, and the inertia properties are changing. So PPE, um, providing propulsion for station keeping or orbit transfer uh, and attitude control, it's going to be managing this, all these variations in the configuration as this happens. And this buildup is going to take a number of years. Um, this, is, this is not as big of a, um, a station as the ISS. Um, so it's, it's simpler to build up. It's going to be built up much more rapidly. Um, uh, but again, uh, another major distinction is that this is not going to be permanently tended. This is intended to be an outpost while a mission is ongoing. So this sort of talks, uh, I've talked a lot about the mission itself 
And um, now what I want to do is I want to hand it over to Ty to drill down into the actual spacecraft itself and in particular some of the electric propulsion features. So go ahead, Ty. Thanks, Scott. So if you can uh, turn to, to slide eight, this is the uh, titled Power and Propulsion Element. So, so as, as Scott mentioned, the, the PPE concept um, and current design are, are based really on our, our 1300 class uh, heritage uh, geostationary communications uh, platform with some changes and modifications in order to um, implement a, a, a PPE mission-specific um, uh, spacecraft. So th this, this platform is, is based on a, a central cylinder structure. Um, in, in our case, we're utilizing roughly 1,000-kilogram class xenon tanks inside the central cylinder um, with a, a standard set of radiators um, mounted outboard of that and, and various uh, secondary structural supports. Um, there's a number of propulsion systems on board, and I'll, I'll go into a little more detail on the, the solar electric propulsion systems in, in later slides. Uh, but at high level, there's there's essentially two EP systems. There's a a medium power six kilowatt um, electric propulsion system, which is uh, being developed by ourselves in, in partnership with with BUSIC. And there's also a, a NASA Aerojet uh, 12.5 kilowatt electric propulsion string, um, which is which is being implemented. The uh, the spacecraft um, additionally has a chemical propulsion system. Um, I you may have noticed in in the previous slides. Um, when crew is present uh, versus when crew is not present changes our, our propulsive um, approach to station keeping um, and it, so and, and even attitude control. Um, and so the, the RCS system on, on PPE is it's a monomethylhydrazine nitrogen tetroxide heritage bipropellant system. Um, both of these systems are forward and aft and refuelable. That, so that means through the forward port on PPE where, uh, where the gateway connects, we can accept propellant, um, both xenon and bipropellant from, from docked modules. And in addition, on the aft end of PPE, there's a, uh, a Maxar-defined refueling implementation, which will allow a, a commercial servicer, for instance, to come up and, and refuel PPE. We, uh, we're implementing in the power system two roll-out solar array wings. These are roughly 30 kilowatt class um, wings each, so that the total power system is on the order of, of 50, 60 kilowatts. Um, we're utilizing a heritage but scaled-up version of our, our um, electrical power system uh, with the amount of batteries. There's a standard uh, suite of attitude control system hardware, um, variety of sensors, and, and um, actuators. And our, our, our avionics system on PPE is, is taking a, a split processing approach. So we're, we're utilizing Heritage Maxar uh, integrated computer units for, for the primary bus functions. And for new functions, for instance, interfacing the gateway, um, interfacing to the, the rather extensive communications equipment, and then, of course, interfacing with the bus, we have uh, these separate processors we're calling mission processors which are essentially, uh, they're essentially at the center of the overall um, avionics architecture. Um, in addition, I mentioned there's, there's some communications functions. Uh, PPE has X and KA band high gain antennas for direct to earth communications um, and on the directional antenna system. There's a KA band uh, separate steerable high gain antenna system 
um, for lunar communication. So these can, they're both uh, independent gimbaled uh, antennas so we can independently communicate with both the Earth and the Moon. And then finally, there's also an S-band uh, system for rendezvous and proximity operations. So I'll talk a little bit more about the, the solar electric propulsion systems on, on PPE now. Um, before that, though, I'll, we'll, we'll start by talking through the, the development of the progression of solar electric propulsion at MaxArt to sort of put things into context. So if you switched over to slide nine now, this is titled First Gen SEP Initial Capabilities for Orbit Maintenance. So this describes the first generation SEP system implemented by, by MaxArt and then Space Systems Loral. Um, a roughly 1.5 kilowatt class uh, thruster system really intended for north-south station keeping um, geostationary communication satellites. Um, it makes, the system makes use of uh, 10 kilowatt class rigid panel arrays, um, an in-house Maxar lightweight power processing unit for the 1.5 kilowatt class thrusters, and at that point a uh, state-of-the-art Hall Effect thruster, the uh, SPT-100. These, uh, this system first flew in, in 2004 and it's been used on a, a number of MaxR spacecraft since. Um, like I mentioned, the primary purpose is north-south station keeping. Um, it does, however, some, have some additional capability for limited electric orbit raising. Uh, switching over to slide 10, moving us on to the second generation uh, set system. So this system enables a major electric orbit raising capability. Um, there are a number of components which which enable this 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 functionality. There's uh, more advanced solar arrays, the the rollout solar array wing, um, which we're implementing on PPE, but in an expanded version. Um, we have a, a modular PPU architecture to run higher power thrusters, and we also have higher power Hall effect thrusters. The for instance, the SBT140, which we're currently flying on um, on our first all electric spacecraft. So the, the, the power level of these thrusters is, is roughly four, four and a half kilowatts, uh, producing a, a thrust of about a quarter of a newton. So it's, it's relatively low thrust. Um, it's, it's still somewhat greater than the SPT-100 on the previous page, uh, but the ISP is, is fairly high. It, the, the main thing that, to point out here is that there's a, in the electric propulsion um, in these electric propulsion systems, the main point is to turn sun to thrust. And so the, the, the components of doing that, the solar array, the power processing electronics, and then the thruster itself, um, each need to be iterated um, and updated in order to implement a, a, a more advanced solar electric propulsion system. So I'm going to switch over to slide 11 now. We'll talk more about PPE-specific um, electric propulsion technologies. So these, these third-generation um, set capabilities, as we're calling them, are we envision will enable major space transportation and exploration capabilities. Uh, the power propulsion element, like I mentioned, is, is implementing a 30-kilowatt-class uh, ROSA solar array wing. Uh, we're also implementing uh, two different thruster types. The, there's this, this uh, medium-power 6-kilowatt-class thruster, the higher-power 12.5-kilowatt-class thruster, uh, both of these utilize power processing electronics with uh, multi-mode capability, which means you can switch between high thrust medium ISP modes and somewhat lower thrust higher ISP modes. You can tune the, the thrust to efficiency profile depending on your orbit raising strategy. Uh, in, in general, 
the fact that these are also higher uh, higher power, you you end up with significantly higher thrust um, capabilities out of the overall system, um, and so. The, the, the PPE itself being a 50 kilowatt class uh, set bus um, relative to something on the order of, of 10 to 15 kilowatts in, in the second generation capabilities would have uh, at the same operating points correspondingly more um, thrust in order to decrease time of flight um, of, of a orbit raising mission. So I'm going to switch over to slide 12 now. So slide 12 uh, is, is a, a simplified overview of the PPE solar electric propulsion system. So you'll see here that I think this helps also to illustrate this sun to thrust um, concept where we have the rosa arrays uh, shown on the upper left-hand uh, portion of this image. Um, both of those are feeding through separate solar ray drive assemblies. Um, these, these two items are, are mechanisms which are used to rotate the solar arrays through 360 degrees so we can maintain sun tracking on the arrays as we spiral out from the Earth to the moon and as we're operating in the lunar orbit. Um, the power has been fed into these power conditioning units. Um, our, our, our heritage power conditioning units implement a 100-volt uh, class bus. And so we use, we use this in general to power the, the entire bus. So, a substantial portion of it will go to the power processing units for the uh, for the electric propulsion system, um, and then there will be some smaller portion used to to enable bus loads, um, and then when actually operational in the uh, with gateway, there will be a substantial amount of power channeled over to the uh, to the gateway through the NASA docking system. So you see that the, the power is then transferred into these these two separate PPUs. There's the six kilowatt PPU and then a AETS PPU. That's that's the 12.5 kilowatt PPU. Both of these are taking this 100 volt power and then up converting it to uh, to 600 volts, uh, 300 to 600 volts roughly, um, and then feeding these into the thruster. They also provide for uh, various thruster housekeeping and startup uh, utilities which are needed to operate the, the units. Um, in addition to power, there's of course the reaction mass, and so we're implementing a, um, uh, you could call it heritage-derived uh, approach to the xenon um, xenon propellant management assembly. So we do have very high uh, capacity xenon tanks. You see those represented on the left. I mentioned these are about 1,000 kilogram class. PPE will have on the order of 2,000 kilograms uh, xenon capacity. Um, these are both routed through a variety of isolation valves and mechanical pressure regulation, which is all based on heritage components, and are flown into the, the XFCs on the right. The XFCs are xenon flow controllers. These, these utilize uh, the various mechanisms in order to, to regulate the flow of, uh, of xenon into the thrusters. The, the actual regulation is performed in the PPUs. And then you'll you also notice the, uh, the there's two branches of, of this, this xenon flow controller um, split. There's there's the uh, in in each of the three thrusters pictured here, there's uh, a a line which goes into the larger assembly, and then there's another line which goes into a, a smaller um, center section. What this is trying to to explain is that in in these Hall effect thrusters, there's a, a primary accelerator assembly, and then there's also a, a cathode assembly, both of which need need xenon, and so. Flow has to be 
provided to both of these items in order for the unit to, uh, to function. Um, one, one of the, uh, the, the things of, of interest to perform on during the actual um, demonstration mission electric orbit raising, uh, I, I mentioned previously that there's uh, refueling capability for both the xenon and the bipropellant systems on board. Um, uh, there isn't a, a, a significant body of knowledge in terms of xenon refueling um, in, in the zero-G environment. And so one of the planned demonstrations, which is mentioned in the, the earlier chart, which showed the high-level demonstration mission um, plan, mentioned the xenon transfer. Um, this xenon transfer is, is really aimed at an onboard self-xenon transfer, the idea being that we'll be able to implement a system which will allow us to generate data on the, the thermodynamic effects of transferring um, xenon from one volume into another um, in, in, a, in a zero G environment. Um, something that's very tricky to, to model on the ground, um, but will be absolutely necessary for uh, many of these systems going forward. In particular, as we scale to higher and higher power systems, as we scale to or implement uh, solar electric propulsion systems, which are based on PPE, which may be utilized in more of a, a tug. Um, Approach where you 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 will want to refuel in order to avoid carrying around all of all of that additional propellant. I, the last last thing I'll mention here is is that these these electric propulsion systems are are mounted on um, steerable gimbals so that we can provide three-axis attitude control while firing them. Um, they are mounted in, in separate sets of gimbals though, so you'll notice on the 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 top two thrusters, the six kilowatt head. Um, Hall effect thruster box. In this case, we have two thrusters mounted on a single gimbal. This is our uh, an extension of a heritage Maxar uh, gimbal called a DSM. And then below that, there's the high power 12 kilowatt class thruster mounted on its own own gimbal. So in total, we have four gimbals, four thruster Hall effect thruster gimbals on the spacecraft. Two of which mount um, the 12 kilowatt class hull thrusters, and the other two mounts two six kilowatt hull thrusters each. So in total, thrusters on the spacecraft. Okay, and I'll switch over to the last slide now, slide 13. Um, it's just a, a current status update on PPE. We we kicked off the program back in June, um, had a systems requirements review a few months ago. Uh, in addition to a phase zero safety review. So right now, we're really in the preliminary design phase, deep into the preliminary design phase. And if we, as we continue along our nominal uh, schedule path, we'll be looking to perform a preliminary design review in early 2020. Um, right now, we have significant long lead hardware uh, items on order. Uh, this being derived on a commercial uh, bus, many of the items are uh, heritage uh, hardware Items and so we're able to order these um, ahead of time in order to 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 maintain or manage the the highly compressed schedule of of this particular spacecraft we're launching in, in 2022 as as shown earlier in the slide set. Um, in addition, there's a phase one safety review coming up in in 2020 and ending the the the, the first phase of the PPE contract is a baseline concept review in May. Um, past this point we'll then be talking about moving forward with the next phases of the contract and, and working on the critical design review and then proceeding to build, um, test, and then fly PPE. Scott, do you have anything you'd like to add? 
Um, no, I, I, I think as Ty said, um, you know, this, this project is going to leverage a lot of capability that already exists and blend in some key elements of new technology that are critical for gateway and for, you know, further human exploration activities or even robotic uh, exploration activities. Um, I, I would also mention that there's very much interest in commercial application of a lot of these things as well. So um, it's, it's a really good project to um, raise the state of the art um, and support uh, NASA's initiatives uh, to uh, have a sustainable return to the moon. And uh, that's really all I would add. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter, at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.